0: more successful and fulfilled life get listening take action and unleash your inner confidence hi it's rob moore here and i'm in
1: the privileged position to be interviewed by natalie bailey for her podcast confidence mastery um so natalie thanks a lot for interviewing me and i think that you want to discuss the journey of failure to success and um, the, the, the journey of confidence along that way and maybe the catalyst for change and if, if we feel ever successful, if I feel like I'm a success, et cetera. Um, so just to give you a little bit of an introduction for the video, I am all yours, Natalie, your followers. Um, and uh, before we start, thank you very much for having me on your show. Thank you very much for coming on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to throw
2: you in at the, the deep end and ask when you're going to shave your beard off.
1: Um, yeah, so I had a plan from right. when we got locked down that I wouldn't cut my hair or my beard until uh, we were out of lockdown. But considering that could be 2026, I've probably re- got to um, re-evaluate that. So when when it's been made official that things are going to start to get back to normal, which sounds like, early to the end of june that's when i'm doing it so you can't really see it on your video natalie it looks fairly normal but when you, if you get those, i mean it is everywhere it's a beast have you not even um, trimmed it no i've not tu- well I, a couple of times i had to cut above my lip because i was basically eating it um but other than that no i haven't touched it and i've enjoyed not touching it Um, and yeah, it's all coming off hair and beard, the whole lot. Um, and you'll get a bigger shock then when you see this (laughs) three-year-old boy. (laughs) People get to see your real face. That's it. Yeah. I have a face. Do
2: you, do you feel like a beard gives you more confidence?
1: (laughs) No, (laughs) no. I've never been asked if a beard gives me more confidence. (laughs) I mean, I, I mean, when I was at school, I was one of the first to be able to grow facial hair. Um, so I always had sideburns, and yeah, you know, I've always had facial hair on or off. Um, I've always felt I look better with facial hair—not a big beard like this, but with yeah. some, some facial hair. Um, so no, never really thought if it gives me more confidence. No one's ever asked me that. I, I, like my my plan. I, you see, I normally have a plan for everything, Natalie. My plan was yeah. always to have a beard to make me look older, and then as soon as I'm old, shave it off to make me look younger. So once I feel like I'm looking old, it's all coming off and I look 23 again. Because um, I actually have a chin, which no one, no one has ever seen my chin, but I actually have a chin. Really? I don't believe you. Are you, are you gonna do it live, shave everything off live? I was, I was thinking about it actually. Because you know some like influencers on Instagram, the ladies, they'll do a live while they're doing their makeup. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about doing a live while I have, I wouldn't do it with the clippers because it's too noisy, but I'd probably cut it to a certain level I'll probably just do a live chatting while I'm having a shave. I mean, I've done them in the bath, in the bed. It'd just be something a bit different, (laughs) won't
2: it? It, Exactly. I I did my roots on a Facebook Live. I actually did three that day. So, you know, people watched. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly, it's what you teach, right? Pattern interrupts. People are interested in what goes on behind the scenes. So what's been going on behind the scenes for you recently that none
1: of us know about? There's probably not much I've been doing in the background that no one knows about. So that's the, the honest answer to the question. I'm not concocting anything um, that you know, I, I don't probably share on my, on my lives quite regularly. Um, but we have created eight to nine, I think nine, online courses or masterminds in eight weeks. Um, we are launching um, globally. Mm-hmm. Um, That's exciting. We've had, we've had a um, a surprisingly good eight weeks business. I mean, we still have to save the cash and we've still got furloughed staff, but we could have lost 500 grand a month. I mean, our overheads were 800 grand before the lockdown. We easily could have lost a half a million quid in um, April and half a million quid in May and half a million quid in June. And we haven't, we haven't lost money. We've made money, um, which we're stockpiling in case there's a second lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm, I'm figuring out new ways to grow our business more globally, more quickly. Um, that's really all I've I've focused on. I've been doing long walks, which have been really good. I've been really enjoying them. I've probably been two hours today. I do three hours sometimes and I do my calls and WhatsApp voice memos on those. And um, yeah, that's been, I've really enjoyed that. I haven't really had time to focus on anything else. It's pro- probably a more relevant question is what haven't I been doing? Mm-hmm. So I haven't been fucking around on social media. I haven't been looking at what my competitor's doing. I haven't been engaging with my critics. I haven't been dealing with admin. I haven't been dealing with politics. I haven't been dealing with minutiae. I have cut out all the wastage. And, and that was forced upon me because the lockdown, basically, at one point I did kind of think, you know what, this could be really hard for us, really hard, like the hardest Moment in our whole business journey in fifteen years. Mm. So actually, I don't say that that you are asked the wrong question. You asked a good question, but it's triggered an even more relevant question. And I was interviewing um, Richard Koch, who wrote Eighty Twenty Principle, who's worth four hundred and forty million. And um, you know, he was talking about hyper productivity and efficiency and effectiveness. And um, I have not wasted. I have not wasted more than 15 minutes a day. You know, there's a, there's, a big, there's a big guy in the property training space. You know his name. It's not relevant to mention his name. But, you know, he's caused a bit of trouble recently. And, you know, he's, he's been in the mainstream media and stuff like that. And I don't even know what's been going on. And apparently there's this noise and all this criticism. And all and I just have no idea what's going on because, you know, I've got a business to launch on a global level. Um, and that's what I've been obsessing about. I have been more obsessed in the last eight weeks than I have the last eight years, and I'm already pretty obsessive anyway. That that in itself is true. <laughs> so I know you do
2: everything with purpose. Like there's never a, oh, I'll just, I'll just see. I know you say everything's a test, but I think you, you know you're very purpose-driven, looking for success. As was there a moment in your life where you thought, oh, "I've made it"?
1: No. No, I've never made it. I've never sat down and thought, man, I've made it. I never have. And that is a, that is a failing. That's not just humility. That's also a flaw. Um, I personally believe that your strengths are your weaknesses. You know, your um, flaws and failings are also your greatest gifts. So um, I never really feel like I've done enough. I've made enough. I am enough. And, you know, that can sometimes leave you feeling somewhat empty, Natalie. But it's also great for drive and growth and progress. So, I mean, look, I became a millionaire before the age of thirty-one. It was, it was always my goal to become a millionaire by. Well, actually, when I was young, I wanted to be a millionaire by like twenty-one. But I didn't have a plan. I just had a, you know, I just wanted to be one. I didn't even really know why. It was just a, a thing, wasn't it? And then I. I I had more intention to become a millionaire by 30 and I made it before 31. And there would have been a stage when I worked that out on my net worth. But I thought, yeah, I'm a millionaire now. I had to keep pinching myself and saying that for years. Um, Cause I mean, there was days where I couldn't go out and, and afford a 20 pound meal. Um, I had a girlfriend, um, what probably 15 years ago, um, maybe 16 and she'd have to take me out and she'd have to pay for everything. Cause I couldn't even pay for half of the dinner. And I hated that. I felt such shame and embarrassment. Um, and so even to, even to this day now, if I go out for a nice meal, I remember when I couldn't afford one. And I think that's good because it keeps you somewhat grounded. Um, we've done some great things. You know, I've broken world records. I've written a lot of books. My podcasts are really successful. We've got a, a 20 million pound, just about a year I'm training business. I've got all my properties, you know, hundreds of properties that I own and co-own. We've got a really successful letting agency that makes hundreds of thousands of pounds, net profit. Um, and I just feel like I'm just starting and I don't feel like a big businessman. I feel like, I've, you know, I'm an entrepreneur who's still got a lot to achieve. Do
2: you, see, do you think that's a good thing or something that holds you back a little bit?
1: I don't think it holds me back. I think it just stops me from sitting down and smelling the roses if you like. So, um, I mean, look, it depends what you want out of life. I don't want comfort. I don't want security. I'm not saying I don't like them. I know I don't want them. I don't want them. I, I get, you know, as soon as I've had them, I've got really bored and I've just had to break, break it up. So even though it's uncomfortable, I want growth, progress, disruption, um, evolution. I want, you know, to write more books, to do more podcasts, to get more guests, to have more reach, to have more impact. Um, so I probably should sit down and look around and go, look what I've built and smell the roses.
2: Like, Have you ever done that task? Like written down every achievement you've ever made, everything that you're great at and gone, oh, fuck, actually. No. Do you think that would benefit?
1: I've I've never sat down and listed it all out. No. Mm I mean, I think I'm, I was going to say, I think I'm reasonably self-aware. That's a, an oxymoron in itself. I'm reasonably self-aware in that I think I, I think I know what my strengths are and what my weaknesses are. Um, but no, no, I've never really done that. I'm not really sure. Why would I do that? What, what, what would that?
2: Hmm. To know exactly what you've done and what you have achieved for those moments where you're going, oh, I'm not doing enough, I haven't done enough. When Mm -hmm. you must have those moments of self-doubt, otherwise you wouldn't keep going.
1: Yeah, but I I don't really come from the place of, I've not done enough in the past. Mm -hmm. I come from a place of, I've got more to do in the future. So what's the end goal? There is no end goal. The end goal is... Keep moving forward, keep progressing, keep disrupting, keep enjoying the surprise elements of business and life, to have more reach, more impact on a global level. And where does that drive come from? Um, part of it is wanting to make a difference and to matter and to be important and to be valued. Um, part of it is because I just love being an entrepreneur. I really love it. And if there were no such thing as currency and we didn't exchange money as we do, and we all got to do something and we were all given the money we were given. And it was just all almost like a bit of a communist state. And, you know, you can choose what you do regardless of money. I would be an entrepreneur. I would write books. I'd do podcasts. I'd do social media. I'd do live videos. Um, I I'd do, I I'd do courses and education It's what I would do. So I'm, I'm, Every day I'm doing what I know I'm meant to be doing. So why would I want that to end? Why would I want to sell it? Why would I want to exit it? Why would I want to retire from it when it's what I want to do for the rest of my life? Like the thought of being 85 and still kicking it as an entrepreneur to me is really exciting. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of people want to be retired by the time they're 50 or 60. But to me, you retire from something you don't want to do anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm doing what I want. So I don't want to retire from it. Now, could that change? Yeah. Often people who are 20, 30 years and I me mean, say, oh, well, Rob, you know, it might change. You might, you know, think, you know, priorities might change. They might, and and, and I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. Um, and part of never quite smelling the roses keeps that driver momentum going. Now, I also do come from a bit of a place of fear and loneliness and emptiness. I wouldn't say it's the, my main driver, but for sure, you know, that being that fat kid school and never being noticed and appreciated in the way that I wanted um, is definitely still there a bit and, and I'm still trying to prove you know that I'm valuable that I matter that I'm worth respect and being noticed um, and I'm okay with that now I hated that about myself for a very long time mm-hmm. like I thought there was something I'm oh, needy you know what's wrong with you you know but But now I know that's just the makeup of who I am and it's part of the drive of who I am. Yeah. So I'm kind of okay with that.
2: Well, that's good. So, because you've often referred to yourself as a failed artist, a failed pub landlord, a failed this, a failed that, and you always say about if you're going to beat yourself up, you need to lift yourself as well. So what was the catalyst for change? Was it meeting Mark? When did you decide to, you know, take that plunge and, like, really invest in yourselves to... Not call yourself a failure anymore.
1: Yeah, so I'm going to be technically correct about this. Yeah, I didn't fail as an artist in the art form. I failed as a commercial artist. So I'm actually good at art, and that's one thing I can say. I got 100% at GCSE. I was the only person in the country to get 100% at GCSE, as told by my tutors. I got 98% at A level, uh, and from a very young age. I, I was always the best in school at art. I was often best, better than them two or three years above me. And that was one thing I was really good at. So uh, I, I know I'm a creative guy. I know I could turn my hand to any kind of art. It's just something I can do. But I was terrible at commercializing it. In art, being the best technical artist does, technical artist does not make you the most successful artist. Just like being the most technical musician doesn't make you Coldplay. Because there's other elements, there's the commerciality, there's the emotion, there's the simplicity, there's the luck, there's all these other elements. Um, and so I was good at art and terrible at all the other elements of art, getting, an, getting a, um, a promoter, getting an agent, get entering competitions, getting my art into galleries. I was terrible at all that stuff because I, was, I, didn't, I didn't have any confidence, I was a wallflower. And, I, you know, like if, you, if you looked at my art and you didn't immediately like it, I was like, oh, you don't like it. Oh, uh. And I, like my, me creating art was like me putting my soul on a canvas or, a, you know, or whatever material I was using. So, and then in, in the pub game, I didn't fail in the, I took the pub over from mum and dad or dad when he was ill. And I did a really good thing for my family. I've never actually said this publicly, but my dad was really ill. And I put my career on hold to come back and work in the pub and, you know, help. And I did that, and that was a good thing. But I didn't make that pub a wild success. I never really wanted to do it, so I was doing something for my family and not for me. Uh, and then I got to the point where I just wasn't trying at it, and it, you know, my, my parents knew it. Um, I did architecture at university, but I never pursued it. So however you define failure, I never made them a career, shall we say, Natalie. Mm-hmm. Um, the catalyst was my dad ended up having a nervous breakdown on December the 15th, 2005. That was the catalyst for the decision. The decision to no longer live a small life, to no longer live other people's lives, to no longer accept mediocrity or comfort or the illusion of security or playing small or accepting your fears and your failings, no longer. But it wasn't like then all of a sudden my millions reigned in the bank. The next catalyst was meeting Mark because we partnered together, we're very different, The first 20 properties we bought was with his money or his mum's money or his stepdad's money and without him there wouldn't have been his money and his mum's money and his stepdad's money and that wouldn't have cost the first 20 properties in the bank and i know mark had a similar experience to me a big catalyst for his journey was meeting me because he tried a few business partnerships with his mates from private school and they'd they'd not really gone anywhere either um so you know you could they they, they happened really quickly together by the way like within 10 days of each other And you could say, oh, well, that was lucky or that was quick. But I'd been searching for seven years from 18 to 25. What am I meant to do? Um, and, you know, working in the pub was comfortable. I lived upstairs. Didn't yep. need, you know, I didn't pay any rent. I had 200 quid cash in hand a week. And I'd go and spend £225 a week on clothes and going out. Um, and it was comfortable. But it wasn't me. And it wasn't who I'm meant to be. And I now know that I'm, I'm meant to be so much more than what I was.
2: What was the, 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 the thing that made you go, right, we need to invest in ourselves and get, you know, mentored and help and guidance along the way? Do you think that would have changed how you were, for example, as an artist commercially if you'd done that then? Do you think you'd be on a different path?
1: Well, I had a, I had a um, very negative, limit, limiting um, and liability mindset around money. So I'd happily go and buy a, buy a 500 pound suit, even though I'd only pay, been paid 200 quid that week um, or a bang & allison TV on a credit card. Um, but I would never think about paying for education or mentorship or, or training. I'd see that as I haven't got anything physical for my money. Mm-hmm. So I was in the mindset of I'll buy a thing because I can see it, feel it, touch it, a or watch, or, you know, car, whatever. And I didn't understand the residual values of any of those things. But because training, education, mentorship, guidance, support, it's ethereal, it's intangible. You don't get something physical. So I just couldn't get my head around it. I was also in my, very, in my art days, I made a decision as an artist, which retrospectively pro- probably wasn't very good, but I think at some stage you could do this. It was just too early. I made a decision never to look at anyone's art, never to go to galleries, never study other artists, because I, I wanted to be unfiltered, and unadulterated. I didn't want to be influenced by anyone living in, in the world of art. So I wanted my art to be pure and unique and original. And so I take my music, my um, inspiration from music or poetry or film or other creative arts, not art. So, cause I wanted to be original. But um, if you want to be successful in property and business, you have to do the opposite. You have to learn from the great, stand on the shoulders of giants. They've blazed the trail, they've made the mistakes. And so that was a massive mindset shift, for one, Training, education and mentorship is an investment, not a liability. I had to flip that. Uh, And then two, copying someone else and learning from someone else is actually a good thing, not a bad thing. Because if you try and reinvent property and learn yourself, you are going to, you're going to fail. So um, now when I met Mark, Mark was already a bit further ahead of me. You know, he'd bought overseas off plan, new build. He'd failed at those. So he protected me from those. So he was kind of a mentor without me, you know, banging him 20 grand. He was sort of like a... Um, a partner mentor, but then Mark and I both got to the point where we ran out of his money and his parents' money and my mum's money where we hit a ceiling. And so then we were like, okay, um, who's, who's done joint ventures? Who's um, you know, done low and no money down deals? We didn't know that they were then those back then, but we figured a way to learn from people. I mean, I even had a chat with Mark on, the, um, on Zoom this morning. And, and Mark said, I don't know why anyone would want to be first. I never want to be first. Because when you're first, you have to make all the mistakes. and you, you, know, you, you uh, your best to let someone else be first, watch them, and then don't do their mistakes and then learn from you know, what works for them. Mm-hmm. Mark never wants to be first. I always want to be first because I'm the disruptive, unique you know, kind of thing. Um, and that's actually quite a good mix, really, having... So when it comes to property and business and personal development, we're not the first anyway, are we? We're nowhere near the first. So I'd rather learn from someone else who's been there and done that. But then when it comes to being myself and my own brand and my own podcast and my own courses, I want to bring a a flavor of uniqueness, um, something that's me. So I think people should learn, you know, they should model the traits of the greats. They should learn from the masters. They should stand on the shoulders of giants. It's going to save them time and money, but they should also remember that there's something unique and special about them. And if they bring that flavor too, like, if you think about bands in music that Really stand the test of time. They usually create a new genre, and they oft—it's often a hybrid. so Rage Against the Machine is an example. You know, you've got almost heavy metal, but not quite, and you've got a a rock metal singer who's almost rapping, but not quite. And and they're like, "Whoa, what's this?" And I forget that—I forget the name of that artist. It might have been Lily Allen, where she doesn't really sing; she talks. Oh, yeah, yeah. And now there's it, Billie Eilish or Eilish. You know, she's got a really distinct way of singing, which you've never heard before. Now, they're taking musical influences, but then they're just adding something unique, and they're the ones that get remembered. So I'm trying to learn, model the traits of the greats, those that have been before me, but then bring something that's Rob, something that's unique. And I think that's the, the best space to be in. Yeah.
2: Do you feel pressure to remain disruptive,
1: given that's the brand? No, because it's who I am. I'm not trying to be something I'm not. Yeah. Like if everything was ordered in my office and everyone was sat in a nice row and all the desks were tidy and everything was just so, I would go in and mess the fuck out of it on purpose. I wouldn't be able to help myself. So I'm not, I've not, I've not created a brand because it sounds good or I've done some market testing. I am being myself. Yes. My brand. So now I don't feel any pressure to be myself because I am myself. That's very good. Sometimes, (laughs) um, sometimes I think, you know what? The industry or my company or my staff or a department or my podcast, or sometimes I think this needs shaking up. And, you know, my job is to figure out when to shake it up. Yeah. But I don't feel pressure. Because I usually want to do that before there's pressure to do it.
2: Is that why you did the Jordan Belfort interview?
1: Yeah, because I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. I was, you know, like, well, I wasn't as forthright of saying it as I I did here. Uh, You know, you you knew. um, And I didn't want to do it because, um, I don't know. Because I didn't want to do it, I wanted to do it.
2: I understand that.
1: Yeah, because I felt, If I'm going to interview Jordan Belfort, I can't ignore the fact that he went to prison for fraud. Mm -hmm. And there's a bit of a disconnect for me for someone who's apparently the best sales trainer in the world, except he went to, to prison for fraud. But if I'd gone to prison for fraud, would I want a chance to start again and make my wrongs right? Yes. And do I live and breathe the fact that you should always listen to someone and find their opinion rather than judge them? Yes. I knew if I interviewed Jordan, I had to go in and ask the hard questions. I knew that. I, I couldn't be pally like I am with a lot of my guests because they're friends. Yeah. I, I knew I was going into something that I, I was going to have to challenge the way I interview and, 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 and be some, somewhat more interrogative and distant. And it's not really me. And actually quite a few of my followers were like, well, Rob, were you okay? Oh, that was cold. Oh, you were, oh, Yeah, and they're, they're, that's because that's what they're used to me on. But that, that for me is a good thing. Cause as soon as my listeners go, oh, yeah, oh, Rob, he's like this, you don't fucking know me and I'm going to change just to keep you on your toes. So as soon as you think you know what guess I'm going to get. So I've got a billionaire tonight. And then as soon as you think I'm going to get another billionaire, I'm going to get someone like Katie Hopkins or David Icke or, you know, <laughs> or whoever. And then as soon as you think I'm selling out my show by getting controversial guests, I'm going to get a billionaire again. Because that's, that's, the, that's the concept. I want, you know, like, I want to keep you growing. I want to keep myself growing. For me, that is the excitement of life is the unknown, which is why I don't want to retire, which is why I don't want to sell. which is why I don't know the end goal.
2: Who's been your favorite person for, for on the
1: Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast? Um, I think it's difficult because what a define favorite. Like well, the, the, best, I- the best conversation
2: you've had with somebody for the podcast. The one that you've enjoyed the most? That's got you thinking and
1: inspired? Answers. (laughs) Sorry to be like, I'm I'm being technical here, but this shows the concept of my show. The concept of my show is to bring a a variety of guests in a variety of guises. So I'm going to list you a few for, for different reasons, Natalie. Probably the most engaging, charismatic was Barry Hearn. And obviously, he's a huge name. He was like the most charming man on and off the camera. And obviously, he's a very big guest. Um, Probably the most disruptive and talked about and good for the growth of the, the channel was David Icke. Probably the most challenging for me, but one that I actually felt, you know what, I handled that slippery eel pretty well, was Katie Hopkins. Um, The one I've probably forged, the two probably forged the best friendships with, or the three, would be David McCourt, the billionaire, Kevin Clifton from Strictly, and Jake Wood from EastEnders. Um, And I could talk to those two, those three, all day. And, you know, when people watch me talking to them, they're like, wow, you know, you've got great rapport. Same with Grant Cardone, actually, I'd put him in that mix. You know, I think one of the reasons people were shocked of the distance between me and Jordan is because of the closeness between Grant and I. Um, And I I couldn't go in like sitting there laughing along with Jordan talking about Grant when I'm a friend of Grant. I'm not going to be disingenuous. So I'm going to ask him the question, then I'm going to back off. And I'm going to let him give his answer, but I'm not going to chirp in and be all pally with him. Um, you know, Jordan, Jordan Belfort, the value of the interview was great, but the value of the content was weak and I gave him every chance to give really good content in, on sell, on selling. And he didn't really to But not
2: give it away for free. Is he?
1: Well, why not? I give loads <laughs> of stuff away. I, I'm not holding anything back in this interview with you.
2: No, he's a different and, person. Did yeah. you change your
1: mind about him after the I, interview? I thought he had some really good answers to some questions, especially the quick fire. Because some people said to me, Oh, Rob, you know, you didn't get much out of him. I asked 23 questions. So basically, on average, you were spending two minutes per answer. That's a lot of questions. You never prepare more than probably 12, 15. Ask 23. So I actually delivered. It was just people, you're used to me doing an hour and a half, two hours, or whatever. Um, I I wouldn't say I had that much of a preconception because I I get judged a lot and people don't know me. So I tend not to judge until I've spoken to someone. So I didn't really go in thinking Jordan's this and Jordan's that. I thought the film was bloody awesome. I thought the book was bloody awesome. I think his life's fucking fascinating. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that in and of itself is interesting. Um, I have my opinions about him, but they're just opinions they're not really that relevant. Um, I thought he answered some stuff really well. I thought he got angry a couple of times. There was definitely some emotion there, which... Yeah. Hey, look, I like had as much hate as he, I might have the same. Um, yeah.
2: I found that. I met, I met him last year and there is something in him that's not quite there, like full happiness i think and it's a bit touchy
1: yeah yeah maybe i mean I, I definitely sensed some anger and you know you can say you don't care about the critics you really don't care and they're good for your brand but you can sense when people are hurt emotionally mm-hmm. by what others say um but i understand that because i have my own douse of critics and they say stuff that's not true and that's unfair and that's defamatory so i know how that feels so i don't judge him for that I just thought as an interview, I thought it was one of the best interviews, not because how good I was and not necessarily because of how much content he gave. But if you're a voyeur, you know, you're watching a bit at a distance and for, for fascination, that was a great interview because it's like, you know, when I asked him when was the last time he took drugs and he, he took ages to answer <laughs> that's just fascinating. And I'm not saying I didn't believe his answer. I'm just saying that's fascinating. Yeah, you know, when you ask him to talk about Grant Cardone and he went off on one, that was fascinating. So, yeah, sometimes the, the interviews with the deepest amount of content aren't necessarily the best. It depends how you define them. Mm. Um, yeah, and you know, you know what? I've got... Like I interviewed Theo Perfitis, and he was hard work, man. And quite a few people thought he wasn't warm. But my, um, my podcast team had gone to the wrong location, and we had no equipment. And I had to use a Zoom H1, because luckily I had it in my bag, and then my iPhone. And it was fucking Timpot, you know, Kieran and I felt like a pair of pricks coming into the, you know, the dragon with, you know, this and a phone. So in in some regards, that was one of my best interviews because it was really hard to get myself mentally in the right frame of mind to not feel like a complete prick. But I did it. Um, Dorian Yates, that was so hard for me, that interview, because he's a big, um, like, imposing man. And that was early in my interviewing. And my interviewing was not very good. And there was a lot of noise in the background in the gym, but I got that done. So, yeah, there's a lot of interviews that I've really enjoyed for different reasons. Yeah. And interestingly, the ones I enjoy are often the ones that are the hardest to do.
2: I think if things are, things are easy, they're never as satisfying. So what's, what would be the, the hardest thing you've had to learn to become successful
1: in your field before i answer that this is really important i'm going to say it i did a webinar last night for podcasting um and you know I, i made an offer for my podcast course at the end it's a brilliant offer and i asked my team how many i sold and they said six and in the first nanosecond all the experience of 15 years flashed before me that shit it's not worth my time. That's six grand. And I did a, a freaking awesome deal. What am I doing? You know? Um, and then I thought, wait a minute. Did I deliver a really good, good value talk that people would be happy with that was textbook? And the answer was yes. I, I was metronomic in my execution of that talk. Like I probably couldn't have done it any better. So in the remaining few seconds of me thinking about it, I thought, so fucking what? All I can do is all I can do. Mm-hmm. James is watching this live, just said it was excellent. Yes, she did. So I, I initially was going to judge myself on external factors. And then I thought, well, why don't I find out how many people were on the webinar? 55. So six out of 55, what's that? 11, 12%. That's a really high conversion. That'd be 120 out of 1,000 on a webinar. That's a really high conversion for a product like that. Mm-hmm so in going back on the interviews and your your own self-worth and progress and results and success you probably shouldn't measure too much externally you should probably just measure did i deliver what i wanted to deliver Mm. and i guess that's how i try and assess the podcasts but here's the challenge i like to put myself in situations where it's hard to deliver I can turn up and interview someone with an iPad and the same fucking questions from 1985. Anyone can do that. But what about, what about sitting with a guest who's quite imposing and not having any questions? None. You know, everyone says on podcast, you should do loads of research. What about if I do none? Mm. Not many people can do that, but I can do that. And I'll test myself to do that. So, because it's exciting and that's where you get the growth. Um, anyway, what was your question?
2: (laughs) You've made me forget now. Um, Investing in yourself. No, 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 that was was later. What's been the hardest thing you've had to learn to get to where you are today?
1: This is an easy one for me. Look, there are plenty of challenges in business, but I reckon the single thing that is the most challenging to master, that if you master it, you win in business and life, and it's an ongoing pursuit, which you'll probably never fully master. I'll do, you, I'll do you quick fire if you want. You can ask me. I'll do some quick fire answers. So okay. That, um, I was
2: going to actually just ask you, like, when are you happiest?
1: When I'm listening to vinyl, definitely. Yeah. And um, when, I, um, when I've achieved something meaningful in business, when my clients succeed, um, when I feel like what I'm doing is making a difference to people, like when I'm progressing, I'd say those, those instances.
2: Are you happy overall in your life?
1: No, and I don't think... I think um, the pursuit of happiness is a, a vacuous and misleading pursuit um, because I think that ultimately we're wired to move away from pain more than towards pleasure. Um, and you know our survival instinct is stronger than our... Instincts of pursuit, Um, happiness. I believe is a chemical reward for achieving something which helps with evolution. So in reality, I think most people are striving most of the time, and then the the small rewards are happiness, contentment, Mm. achievement, etc. So I think that most of the time we're not in that emotional place. We're striving, growing, challenging, wrestling, and I think that's evolution. And I think. Letting go of the destination of happiness actually makes you more balanced
2: interesting um so you've made me forget what I was gonna say now. <laughs> Thanks um, what's the the thing that you're most confident in doing in business?
1: I would say um. Coaching, training, helping, and guiding people—like probably one in five hundred questions I get, I'm not able to answer, and I'm always able to pass them to someone who who can. Um, I would say my ability to give content that is relevant to entrepreneurs—you know, that that works for them—that's that's real from real experience, creation and creativity. Strategy and vision, those things I know I can do. I don't always do them well. I make mistakes, of course. Even the things you're good at, you make mistakes in. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm confident in those areas.
2: And if you could leave people with one top tip to increase their confidence in themselves, what would it be?
1: There'd be two things, start now, get perfect later. Mm -hmm. And if you don't risk anything, you risk everything.
2: Cool, so where can people find you?
1: Um, on the webinar,
2: online, online. We don't, we don't agree with in-person stalking, but online stalking is okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. If you said my name, Rob Moore, you can find me anywhere. Really. Um, my, probably my most famous books, life leverage money and start now get perfect later. And my podcast, The disruptive entrepreneur, but I'm on every social media channel. So, um, and should we do a shout out for your podcast? confidence mastery by natalie bailey
2: i'm not your life by yeah that's me thank you very much
1: much. (laughs) all right it's been fun
2: thanks it has thank you very much for being a guest and um have a great day
0: thanks for listening if you enjoyed this podcast please share it with people you think it will help and stay tuned and subscribe for weekly episodes Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube by searching for Natalie Arabella Bailey and join the better together for a Gold Star Life Facebook community to improve your confidence, network and life.